Hello, what is going down, y'all? This is Bears, Bears and More Bears. It's a very interesting podcast that features many different bears, including uh, the grizzly and the brown. No, it's it's burgers, bears and bur- books. Burgers. It's the one where I interview your favorite authors about their favorite books. Very excited to be here today. My name is Ben Hobson. I'm here to interview John Purcell. I'm yet to hit record, but I'm very excited. We're talking about E.M. Forster's A Room With A View. Never read this author before and not really my style, but man, this podcast has really helped me unpack a bunch of different authors I would never have read before and I really enjoyed it. So I'm excited to talk to John about it and yeah, excited for you to listen. Thanks very much. Uh, As always, you can check me out on all the socials just did a cover launch of my new book today i would love to see you guys get on there and give me extremely positive feedback no negative feedback if you have negative feedback you can just put that in your back pocket and keep it over there but the uh the positive stuff yeah send my way so uh hook me up on socials and uh check out that new cover but other than that let's get into talking to john purcell Well, thank, thankfully, you're not. Sorry, go on. We're not. We're not doing gravity's rainbow. Okay. <laughs> it's a room with a fucking view. Yeah, 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 man. That's um. I appreciated that. Next next month's choice is a Marcus Zusak, and I'm already looking at it like, oh no, there's so many pages. But it's actually the first one, the Messenger. Have you okay. read that one? No. 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 Yeah. So I think that's a shorter one. I just yeah. I love I love you, Marcus Susak, who definitely listens to this podcast. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm just tired. I don't, <laughs> don't want to read that massive thing. But yeah, we're talking about, as uh, John Purcell put it, a room with a uh, certain view, and it is by E.M. Forster. And we've got John Purcell in the in the chat. Very happy to talk to you, John, all the way over from. It looks very sunny over there in England, right? Oh, it's not sunny. It's, really? It's it's, it's 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 raining. It's awful. Yeah. Oh, oh! Well, it's raining here in Australia too at the moment. I'm in Queensland. It's got that beautiful tropic humidity kind of, kind of light rain. If you know the one I mean. Um, this is textbook. This is textbook England. Yeah, it's just miserable, drippy <laughs> rain. Yeah, there's nothing exciting, nothing to write home about. It's just yeah. Oh, it's just. Uh, are you uh, so it's happy? Happy being there. Clearly. Yeah, yeah, I love England. It's great. It's great fun, and I mean, I've I've had I've been able to cancel Netflix because the uh, the BBC news at the moment is just too too engrossing. Mm. All the crap that's going on in politics, a lot so, of drama over there yeah. at the moment. Yeah, How um, much cheaper. Do you, can I ask you this question? Do you? I I personally I like I like miserable weather, but I guess if it's nothing but miserable weather, it would be kind of what do you, do you like sunshine and the beach and things like that? What's what's your vibe? No, no. I mean, I did, I did that at Sydney. Yeah, I had, mm. had all that for a long time. Um, here, I mean, um, it, this this place hasn't been going to script. This is unusual. We've had sunshine after days after sunshine. We had drought. Like England had drought. I brought drought to England. Um, I don't. Know. It's, it hasn't been usual weather here, um, wow. and or anywhere I think in the world. Mm. So it's. It, I've had. I've, I haven't had the. What was on the brochure? hasn't really materialized it hasn't been glum raining days and and fog 
and all that mm. sort of stuff. It's sunshine and loveliness. I mean, you wouldn't need to go to Italy if you're living in this um, England. I mean, it'd be just too lovely to, to even bother to travel wow. to Italy. That sounds really mm. spectacular. Kind of makes me want to come come over on a visit. <laughs> Um, we're talking today, like we said a couple of times now, A Room with a View, E.M. Forster, 1908 novel. I think this may be, yeah, this is older than Agatha Christie, obviously. So this is probably the oldest one I think I've read on this podcast so far. Can I ask you this question? Why do you, you I think you have a real value of older texts and what people would probably put into the classic section in the in the library and in the bookstore, right? What, what value do you think there is in reading these novels from the past? Is it something that every single reader do you think should have in their reading habit? Is it something that adds a lot to your life? And do you think other people could as well? Um, short answer, yeah. Um, I absolutely think everyone should read these things. But um, I've lost over the years. When I was in my secondhand bookshop, um, I had a sort of a, a weird education. My you know, the, the chattiest of my customers were in their 80s and they would sit and they would talk to me. Um, and so I was kind of um, leaping generations. And so their favourite books were older just by because when they were reading them, they were just out, you know. So yeah, yeah. That was there's a lot of, yeah, there was a lot of early 20th century stuff that was being recommended to me when I first got into secondhand books. And those led me on to um, earlier because most of the 20th century writers were, you know, either reacting to, or wanting to emulate um, writers of the past. And so it kind mm. of led me, that was a trail. But these days, um, I'm not as much of a, um, a grump. I don't, I don't, <laughs> as, as, as um, I used to be kind of, kind of like a classics enforcer. You know, I would, I would argue people out of, in, in my own shop, out of, out of, I'd argue my, my, um, my daily intake down because, you know, an old Thomas Hardy was only worth two to four dollars and the latest James Patterson might have I might have sold for fifteen and I would talk this poor bastard out of a James Patterson and make them take a <laughs> Hardy. And it'd be the last time I'd ever see them because they'd never read it and they think, you know, they'd got done. You know, why this, did I end up with pushy sales boy giving us this old yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean so, Yeah, sorry, continue your answer. Well, it just what it just meant it just meant that you know for years I was that guy you know always telling you to read old stuff and I will tell you if you start be going I'll, I'll go I'll keep going but I read so much modern writing in the last ten years that I've I've found so much in in modern lit and mm. modern fiction that uh, I'm not as bolshy as I once was. Mm. And what's, what are the main differences that you see? I mean, I know that's, you know, we're talking very generalized here, but what are the main differences between those early 19th century, sorry, early 20th century sort of writers um, and the, and the literature that we have now in, on the bookshelves? What do you, what do you see as the difference? Um, Time. I think there's a, there was a more time given to a book. So we were more generous before TV. We were more generous before radio and a whole lot of medium that have come since. And and now with 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 Twitter and and Netflix and all these things that that give us everything we want so quickly, mm. um, it is it is difficult to compete. Um, definitely, there's a there's tons of writing 
at the uh, you know in the last uh, ten years that is deep and and long and involved and all that sort of stuff and and we're we're very lucky in this period to to have so much variety in the writing that it's being published you know there are the slender little knockout uh, novellas that that hit you for six with so few words and then you'll pick up the luminaries or something like that which goes yeah. on for thousands and thousands of pages. Um, or or get involved in a huge series, you know, pick up um, book one of, of Michael Robotham or something, and it, it, mm. that's a very long investment when you go along all those books. Very true, yeah. So, you know, we're not, I'm not saying that there isn't any slow reading at the moment, but when I pick up something um, from the first half of the 20th century, from the second half of the 19th century, there's a... a there's a detail in there that I don't find anywhere else, an mm. emotional detail, um, psychological details, uh, descriptive um, writing that is so rich, so full, that whenever I pick it up, I'm, I'm stunned at how much they can they're able to convey. Um, and it, it really is something like stepping into um, a fully realised um alternative universe that's what it feels like sometimes when you when you jump into a trollop or you jump yeah. into george Eliot. um you know and and the writing the writer that we're dealing with today ian forster is light it's short i mean he yeah. he's his novels um you know he only wrote five or six novels and that's it mm. um and they weren't they weren't big tomes they're all quite slender titles uh, yeah. and volumes so like Room of the View is almost like a um, a shorthand version of persuasion, in a sense. You know, um, you know, persuasion isn't isn't a very long book either, but it's it's goes into a bit more depth than Room of the View does, and it has a similar theme. Um, there's a lightness of touch in Ian Forster um, that I think, just as Jane Austen does, it can. Um, lead people to think that the book is light and the author is light and the themes are light. Yeah. Um, uh, because it's such a joy to read Jane Austen and Ian Forster. They're both such joys to read, but they cover and they dive into such depths of, uh, of human experience and, mm. and our, our relations with others, all these things, um, but with such a light touch. It, so those two authors to me, uh, uh, the ones I read most. I read yeah, them, right. reread. I reread Jane Austen all the time. I, I reread Ian Forster all the time. I mean, Room of the View, I have read more than any other book. I wow. just, I can pick it any time. Yeah. I had the audiobooks for a while there. I, I had the audiobook and I was driving out from crossing Sydney to go to Booktopia every day and sitting in traffic. Mm. What better way to, to, to pass the time to listen to Room of the View again? I'll just chuck it in. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, I don't know whether I have any book like that in my... I don't think I have any book like that, if I'm being honest. I don't think I have something I revisit that often. Um, can I ask, just going back to, do you think that there's... Do you think that there's more onus now placed on the author to be more entertaining? Because you sort of have to vie for attention. And as you say, from all these other things. Whereas the authors from that you're describing... I mean, I don't think they had it easier by any stretch in nearly any capacity, but at the same time, there was 
I guess more generosity maybe of the reader to engage with something that was less entertaining on the surface. Although I'm not saying that they're not entertaining, but do you hear what I'm saying? Like, do you think that there's yeah. more onus now placed on the authors to be more entertaining, more vibrant, more pow, more less, less of that light touch that you were describing? I, I do, but I think it's a miscommunication. I think it's, it's, I think it's a, um, it's author anxiety. It's publisher anxiety. Yeah. There's a whole range of things that are going on that, that I don't think they really reflect what's actually happening and what's getting printed and what's being, what's being read. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, we, you know, I, I, as a writer and you're, you're a published writer, you know, when it comes to getting books published, it is, it, you can, you can have the best publisher in the world who loves your work, but they have to then sell it into the, publishing house itself and to the marketing team to the sales team they have to make sure that the finance team signs it off mm. there's a whole lot of business behind the art of books and so that side of things um can get very tangled in people's minds um and we're always shown examples of the opposite we're all you know wolf hall for christ's sake is a bestseller yeah. you know, yeah. you know there's always the opposite. You can always point at something and, and say, this breaks the rule, this breaks the rule. And so while you're sitting there anxious about what you're writing um, and whether or not it's going to be marketable or popular enough or people are going to read it fast enough or someone's going to call it a page turner, all these things which seem so important, um, you know, I, I don't think they are as important as, as we believe. And I, and I and going back to your other point, yeah. writers like, Dickens and and Dostoevsky and and Dumas, um, Eliot, they were writing to um, to an audience almost live. There was a for for many of them they were writing for periodicals, so they were writing serial. Yeah, that's a good point. The book was fat, but if the book, you know, if no one wanted the serial to end, you know, if numbers started <laughs> to fall, the book the book got shorter. You know, if numbers, if people more and more people started to buy the magazine, then the book you know, the, the serial kept going. They had to find other strands of story to keep it mm. going. Um, so, they you were, know, there's the, a lot of pressure on that. That's that's instant. That's very much like a modern... Um, like you're a musician, just about media. like you're getting instant feedback from an audience. Exactly. So, you know, um, Dickens uh, and his household world uh, words um, publishing uh, Elizabeth Gaskell's North and South just after his hard times. I mean, he would have been... He would have been editing Gaskell's work after he's just written his book on on the North of England, um, and seen a completely different picture of the North of England through this woman's eyes. And to my mind, a much better picture <laughs> than his hard, hard times. I mean, I think North and South is so much better than Hard Times. But um, you know that that kind of marketplace involvement in writing was there. From the beginning like yeah, it's, that's, it's just... that's really interesting so they're almost we're talking like you know is the opposite of what i was saying they're almost pure entertainment do you think people were entertained by less than maybe because you know when we read it back now i really enjoyed this novel but there is that light touch where it's mostly just conversations and all these little subtle things and yeah you know what i mean like if you if you just read it on the surface you could say oh this was quick and easy and like you say there's no depth to it um which i don't think is true i think there's a lot of depth and complexity to it but it's so simple and like, i guess it's clear 
and it's not like there's no explosions and there's i guess there's a murder actually i guess that's a good point but i don't know do you think people entertain by less i don't know this is just my general thoughts on some classic fiction i've read where i've had to if i'm being completely honest i've had to endure a lot of <laughs> things you know what i mean and like all right get to the next page and stuff like that maybe i'm just not the ideal reader but yeah what are your thoughts well, there are things when I'm, I was reading it again before coming on the podcast and, and I was reading it with an, with an eye to the modern reader. I don't know why. I think maybe because I it felt, it felt like I, I was about to give it to friends and I was going to be sitting nervously watching them read it <laughs> and go, Oh my God, this, this bit won't be exciting to them. This will, this will bore them. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I did, I was aware of, of the digressions that, um, Forster might make. Uh, he may introduce a chapter with um, a, a subtle dig at, at the British tourist, or he might um, might draw attention to to the fact that um, that there's going to be a mistake in this following chapter, and sort of give the give the game away in, in his introductory par- paragraph. Um, and you know, there's there's a lot of that. There's a lot of those kind of two paragraph, maybe long bits that a mm. modern reader doesn't need. Right? Mm. They just I don't need that. Just get it out. Um, so someone like me, who um, kind of became obsessed with those bits. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's a bit too light. Yeah, you know, that, that were the bits that I actually uh, loved, and I, I re- reread because I I learn more about those bits every time I read them. I mean, I was so conscious this time um, reading it. Uh, when when they introduced the character of Cecil, should we should we sort of give a brief outline of the? Of yeah, well, the, I mean, if you would, if you wouldn't mind doing the honors, mate. I mean, you know the book a lot better than I do, so yeah, if you want to give a brief summary of the plot, that would be great. Um, I mean, it's a very simple simple story. You've got a, a young um, young woman <clears throat> who has who's taken the plunge and and, and left her rather um, suburban. Um, life and gone gone to Italy from 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 just outside London gone to Italy with a chaperone her um her her cousin and is experiencing Italy by going to pensionis one after the other um generally run by the English and kept very English yeah um and and is 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 experiencing Italy second hand through the English in a way mm. um because the, the 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 prejudice from the English is so great that they don't really they don't really want to have anything to do with the, the Italians. Uh, they love the art and they love the history, but they don't like the actual people. Yeah, um, this comes across very quickly in in the first in the first opening scene, which is a which is a dining table in Ascensione, and so you get introduced to a whole range of characters within uh, you know two pages. Mm. Um, so she's there; she's innocent, uh, very much like. Uh, Isabel Archer is an innocent uh, heading into Europe in Portrait of a Lady. Um, so Lucy's there. She bumps into these people who um, are very different to her. Uh, the One's a socialist and the, the son is a, a, a strange, passionate kind of person mm. who's, who's very, very um, influenced by Italy. Um, and there's a, there's a brief encounter which we wouldn't even class as an encounter here in australia with tinder and everything um but <laughs> there's, a, there's a brief kiss 
<clears throat> which is devastating. You know, it's a massive thing. And, and in those days, in those days, the relationships between men and women and all that sort of stuff, it was it was much a grander thing than it would be today. It's so sweet though. Like I love I love that. It was really refreshing to read that, I thought. Yeah, it's a gorgeous scene. I mean the whole thing is gorgeous. Mm. But um and so she re reacts to it because it's so true and honest and um sweet uh and it's instantly affects her. She's never had a feeling like that before. And so mm. she runs a mile. She's been taught all her life not to have those feelings, not to be honest and true about emotions, not to not to think about sex, not to any of those sort of things. So she yeah, runs like a mile. Lead, yeah, go after your passion the way that um, George does. Yeah, you just don't do that. So mm. the second the, the second part of the book opens up in England where she's just agreed to marry this dimwit um, called Cecil, who is... Great name. Um, great name. Yeah, who is... Um, who thinks of her as a as 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 a Leonardo da Vinci uh, Madonna or something? Right? He, he thinks of her as a piece of art. She plays Beethoven beautifully. She she can be made to be the perfect wife. Uh, uh, he doesn't he doesn't know his own feelings. He doesn't know his own self. Uh, there are hints that he's gay. There's a whole range of things that are going on with this guy, um, and he's an incredibly wonderful character. And 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 Daniel Day Lewis plays him perfectly in the movie. <laughs> I was going to mention the movie, man, because I had no idea. But it's um, I've seen a bunch of these clips of Daniel Day Lewis from this film. I didn't realize it was from the um, the film version of this this novel. It's very interesting. Yeah. So we have we have Lucy, who is who has decided to hide from her own feelings and in, entomb herself in in this fastidious young man's life um, of of art and culture and and no actual blood pumping through one's veins. And snobbery. In order to hide, in order to hide, and then we end up with um, George and his father moving into the same small town that Lucy lives in—a satellite town outside London. Yeah, what um, did you think of that as a as a coincidence? Well, they they, they he discusses they refer to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's an old writer um, trick, isn't it? That's called uh, what do they call that? Hanging yeah. a lantern on it, where you're just like, yeah, we yeah. know this is a thing, but just let's move past it. I was yeah. fine with it. I thought it was good. Yeah. Um, and so George comes into play, and therefore all the emotions are stirred. And um, you know what will happen? Will she choose to go with Cecil, or will she choose to go with George? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in those last parts, and I won't tell you what happens. All everyone knows what happens, and you're always asking it to happen. You, if the if the author hadn't given you the result you wanted, you'd have been upset and thrown the book against the wall. So we know what happens, but we won't discuss it. Um, oh, we're going to we're going to save spoilers, are we? I was going to talk about it, so no spoilers. Oh, no, well, I think that I mean I think when you pick up Room of the View and you start that book and you and you have read the first five chapters, then if if you don't get the answer you want at the end, you will not be happy. So I'm assuming everyone knows what's going to happen. I pay that. It's like we're picking up a Jane Austen. You know what's going to happen. Do you think though that there are people who read it who are super reserved and British and and you know don't like their passions and at the end they're like ah oh, damn it wrong choice Lucy. <laughs> well, well, in a sense, um, Mr. Beebs that character isn't he? Because Wait, he, which one's Mr. Beebs? Who are you talking about? He's the, he's the, he's the um, Mr. Beebs the, the chaplain who's, who's sort oh, of right. he was in Italy and it, the only reason they spoke to him is because he was going to be the the, the uh, at their own parish so um 
he ends up being in both half of the book, uh, both half of the book. That's and, right. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yep. And he makes comments about Lucy in the hope that she might bloom and blossom and all this sort of stuff, um, and that she may live like she plays Beethoven one day. <laughs> but he isn't. He isn't happy with the end. He he's not. He he doesn't yeah. think that that that's that true. She's kind of, so yeah, so I reckon there are people out there who who would who would say that no, no, Lucy, you, you Cecil was forward. stable. You knew what you were getting with Cecil. Did I? Sorry, can just to fast forward a little bit. I actually think I read that there was an epilogue written decades later. Is this true? Do you know about this? You know this epilogue? Oh, oh it's so good. Oh, you've read it. <laughs> yes. Okay, it wasn't in my version. Was it? Is is that the first version you read with this extra epilogue? No, no, I, I stumbled across it um, by chance in a in a copy that I had in my shop, and I went, "Hey, hello, what's this?" It was extra. Um, yeah, I mean, in the epilogue, because Ian Forster, um, Cecil is is very much part of Ian Forster. I mean, Lucy, Lucy is Ian Forster, and also Cecil is Ian Forster. Mm. Right? So you've got these two things, mm-hmm. these two parts. And um, Cecil in the afterword is the to me comes out the victor. <laughs> he, Makes sense. He, he has the last word. He has the final word in the book in the in the afterword, and it's glorious. I mean, he he sort of looks at it and says, "Okay, what what happened in the years after yeah. the book finished?" And Which is what really interesting. Is, yeah, yeah. So the Great War happens. Um, Suburbia happens. The the rise of the middle class happens, um, and so uh, Cecil is 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 drawn into the war as a as a um, uh, as a, as an officer, and you know there it's this it's this upturning of the of the of the universe that that um, Forster was writing about and lived. I mean, he didn't write. I don't think he wrote anything after the the upheaval of the war. I don't. Trying to think. Well, just from what I. Sorry, you go. Most of his novels are set before the war, so I think the war mm. was just too much. That world that he knew and loved and and existed in disappeared overnight, in a sense. Um, and I don't think he wrote because I mean, Howard's Ends pre-war, um, Passage to India pre-war. Yeah, I think they're all pre-war. pre-war. So I, I I think that um, that the war kind of did him in. Yeah, wow. That's full on. But he did he did still write this, like you say, this afterward. Um, he did write that. That was something that he added on. It's such an interesting choice. So it was what it was like three or four decades afterwards, after the book was published, that he wrote this extra thing. And I, I mean, I understand it. I mean, um, I think, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think he thought of Room of the View as one of his best books. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and it didn't. It didn't do the things that it didn't get the attention. I think because of the lightness of touch, they didn't get the attention. And when you when people discuss Ian Forster, it's Passage to India first, Howard's End second, um, and nothing else really uh, mentioned. Uh, Mo- Mo- Morris um, or Maurice, I think it's Morris. Um, it, it was is his novel that was published after his uh, after his death because it yeah. was all about. Uh, his um, homosexuality and and the life of uh, was illegal. Yeah, the life that he, yeah. Um, and he, he I mean, but he was alive when it was, that that thing had changed. I mean, he and also around him at that time, there were people writing some pretty amazing things. Um, so he could have got away with it. He just chose not to. 
So he's really um, interesting too. He was a, kind of a private guy, hey? Definitely, yeah. yeah. And Morris is great, and Longest Journey is great. I've not read anything that so far of his that I haven't loved. Howard's End um, is such a powerful book that. And it still teaches me every time I pick it up. It's got something still to say to me about love. Um, wow! It, it's a big. It's a. It's a real brilliant um, book, and with such depth. Um, but that said, I return to Room of View far more often than I return to. I was would in. You, I, would I, you describe back. this one in the same way? Like, would you say that this one is very, very deep as well? Yes, in, in that. In that sense of knowing oneself of facing love um taking risks um you know being honest to ourselves is often the hardest thing Mm. and this book is about being honest to ourselves and it's kind of a message to him himself to Mm. enforce us but he had much greater social constraints on him being himself yeah um and it would have been both Mr. Beeb and Mr. Beeb says that um, Cecil is like him, uh, a, a, a man who's better alone. You know? um, and so there's these kind of little hints of suggesting the constraints placed on these these men and women in that period. Um, and you can read in that context, you know, the novel through that context of, of not being able to express mm. your true desires because of societal pressures. And, you know, by letting Lucy um, finally admit and finally feel the full force of her own feeling for George and for them to be able to break with convention, for her to, to you know, um, upset all her family and choose mm. George mm. over everyone else, um, is, is a kind of an act of bravery that uh, might have been you know, uh, enjoyed vicariously by Ian Forster while doing yeah. it, you know. Writing like a wish fulfillment sort of novel. Um, exactly. Do you, do you think that this book, um, I guess what, yeah. So one of the things I really love about it, one of the things I think that does lend it this air of complexity is that it's never, there's nothing neat. It's not wrapped up neatly. Like, Sometimes when I read books that have a lot of romance in them, like in my mind, I always flick back to watching romantic comedies when I was a kid. You know what I mean? And it's always very neat at the end. And they always, you know, it always ends up together and they're all happy. The whole family works together. But with this, it doesn't seem easy or neat. At the end, like you say, her family is still really unhappy with the decision she's made and she has to live with that. It's just, it always sits a bit, it's never comfortable. Does that make sense? Yeah. And like yeah. the same with Cecil, when she finally breaks it off with Cecil and like excoriates him and just judges his character and like really rails in on like what her, his deficiencies are, instead of this big blow up and him just running away and all this sort of stuff, he actually seems to listen. And then you sort of like, he comes, he sort of comes good. He, he changes his character a little bit because of what she said. So in, you know, normally romantic comedy, me is thinking, okay, this is the bad guy. And then this guy runs away and, you know, he's, he's always mean and he's always nasty, but it's like, there's these shades that I loved, but that was really cool. That I'm so happy that you mentioned that scene. Cause that scene to me is 
absolute proof of his genius. Yeah. You know, that is that that scene to me, I've got goosebumps. When I listen to it in the car, I got <laughs> goosebumps. When I read that scene, I get goosebumps. It is just so brilliant. Yeah. That Cecil reacts in that way. That that Lucy armed with someone else's words um can hit the nail on the head and to a point that um it wakes Cecil it 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 it, it yeah. gives him some self-realization uh, and we what and we we go through it like we experience that ourselves at that at that time as well and every time I every time I I, I read or listen to that book I have the same surprise with that scene <laughs> same surprise that he he has chosen to think of it in those terms and and and, and I love it I love that fact yeah. just, yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that scene so brilliant well, I always think of I think of um uh and this is probably a, a, a silly uh way to go but I always sleepless in Seattle if you remember that Meg Ryan Tom Hanks movie mm-hmm. and she's in a relationship with Bill Pullman at the start of the movie and they're perfectly happy and everything's perfectly nice. But then she meets this Tom Hanks guy over the radio or something and she falls in love with him. And then when she breaks up with Bill Pullman, he's like, okay, that's fine. It's just really nice. And it's not, yeah. it's not interesting. It's easy. They, yeah, I just, I feel like a lot of the time when something is aiming to be enjoyed, maybe writers tend to make things really easy for the audience and it's just enjoyable to really hate a guy it's enjoyable to to be glad they're broken up but when Cecil reacts like that it's such a and then the next scene too where he's he's helping it's Freddie right sorry I've just it was it was Freddie yeah. her her brother yeah. when he's actually changed and he's helping Freddie so not only do we see him listening to her we actually see him put what she said into his character. And so the next thing he's actually changed a little bit. I'm like, Oh, so it's not as it's not clean. And that, that made it, made it feel really real. It made it resonate a lot more strongly, I think. Yeah. And that, that's something that I, I look for, um, in, in those books. Um, uh, I mean, you expect it in 19th century writing, you just need like it's there. Um, and those bits of character, um, always come, uh, out and yeah, you know, when I'm reading Thomas Hardy, there's a there's this pull uh, with reading Thomas Hardy, which is you know weirdly I'm going to say it, but which is like a, a, a Jack Reacher novel. There's this movement forward that you don't know why, but mm. you just you go with it, even though it doesn't seem to have any direction. You just go with it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you put forward in your head what's going to happen, and you're wrong constantly just constantly wrong with Thomas Hardy. Uh, this is going to happen. No, you're wrong. And every time that you're wrong, you kind of have a moment where you're enlightened. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just seeing something which is true for the first time. Mm. And you've, you've put up in your head, you've got some stupid serial version, a soap opera version in, in your head. Yeah, and you come out as, as a poor creative next to Thomas Hardy, who comes out with something which he's seen that is real, that is true, truer than true. And you think, and you slap your head, and you go, well, "Of course." But there are all these; those kind of things are, are the bits that I lap up because I want to see the world as it is, and I want to see character as they are, and I want to see why people do things in an honest and true way, not a plot way, and not a story way. Mm. And 
Artists who can do both, who can who can make a Cecil and have him have that reaction, and also keep the story going. Yeah, and keep keep the whole bundle together. I mean, that final scene with with them reading letters, um, and the knowledge that they're in they're in Italy again, and that the knowledge that you know not everyone's happy with them is is marvelous. Like mm-hmm. it just it it makes it sexier too. Like it's it's. <laughs> They've, they've risked more for what they're getting, you know. Yes, so it actually yeah. heightens all the all the tension. Um, so yeah, yeah there's a lot to from from that book for for people who are writing modern day romance um, to be able to actually heighten things is to make things go um, a little bit awry, you know, to mm. make them. Yeah, I agree. It, I, I think it makes it feel like real life. I feel like. I always think of Bob Dylan's voice in that his his voice kind of sucks a lot of the time and he can't hit pitch sometimes. But man, he feels like he's really singing. Like I really can resonate with Bob Dylan because he has that wobble and the chords on the. I don't know whether you know in, in um it was a song he recorded once, and uh, the keyboard player would come in on on the keys, but they hit record on the first time that this guy had heard the song. And so you hear the keys and you hear Bob Dylan change chords and the keyboard player's like, what's he doing? Oh, and then jumps on the keys and it's all this stuttery kind of stuff in the background. And at the end of the recording, he was like, oh, well, can we take it again? Because I actually know the chords now. Bob Dylan's like, no way. No, I love the sound. I love that. I like people who lean into that as an art. You know what I mean? But I think, I think the risk is that it is, I think there are readers who don't like that. And I think that's fine. I think, you know, world takes all sorts. I was actually reading, this gave me a lot of um, joy. I read the uh, Goodreads rating on this book. What do you think the Goodreads rating on this book is? Do you know off the top of your head? What would you estimate? No, I know. Well, to be literature on Goodreads, you have to be below four. So in between right. three, three and four. You're good. That's 3.9. It's actually pretty good for, um, like you say. Pretty good. Yeah. Well, because it because they embrace it. You can read it without a thought in your head, just like Jane Austen. People can read Jane Austen and say it's exactly the same as George Ed Hire, mm. and they're not the same. And I and I and I will argue to the end of the earth that, that there is so much more. And you can reread it, Jane Austen and find out more about yourself and everyone you know. And over your lifetime, you will still be reading and still be garnering um, advice on how to live, how to mm-hmm. be human. Mm. Um, that's all wrapped up though so nicely in her story that that you know these lessons are being learned like a honeyed pill. You know the pill's going down, but you're only tasting is the honey. <laughs> you know it takes a while. Sometimes it takes a while for you to realize. Um, but you that's know there are moments idea. where there are moments when you um, in your life you have a moment of conscious no, um, conscience when you're actually reliving something you read in a book or watched on TV and you're feeling the shame that they felt in the book or that, and you realise that that lesson is in there somewhere that's yeah. been waiting for this moment to come yeah. out. Uh, and really there's so many, yeah, there's so many uh, uh, lessons like that. But if you're as a beautiful a writer and as, as clever as Austin and, and, and Ian Forster, you can make it so that people don't even realise and that's the that's the mm. when I people people I mean all that bro what do they call them bro lead or whatever bloody hell it is uh, all those guys that don't read women drive me insane oh, um, right and who only read books that 
that are so obviously intellectual, you know, so obviously about big ideas. Um, they don't write these kind of books, you know, mm-hmm. and I get, I get really cross. I mean, that, I mean, George Eliot should really be sitting on the pinnacle of most people's lists, right? She's just a genius beyond compare. Um, streets ahead of nearly everyone else. Yet she never, she's never on these lists. You know, these bro lists, and <laughs> they're, they're never there. Um, bro because lists. I hadn't heard that term before. Well. That's one. It's bro lit. Bro lit. Sorry. Um, bro lit. But, yeah, okay. I, I um. There's so much more in her and mm. in an author uh, that uh, that is going on in our lives every day that is opening our eyes to ourselves and um, our lives, you know, <laughs> the meaning of life. Yeah. Um, so so readily. But it's just because they they make them absolutely enthralling stories and they yeah. uh, convince us that we're enjoying ourselves. Yeah, uh, while we're getting slapped on the wrist, that's that's sneaky, hey. It's a it's a great uh, it's an art to that for sure. Um, yeah. Can I ask you a couple of quick questions about? Uh, so sorry, when did you? What was the first encounter with Forster? Was it actually this book? Um, when I was at the end of my HSC, I was bombing out. I completely failed the HSC. I got I, I, I got a letter at the end which said you got below fifteen. It didn't tell mm-hmm. me exact number. Mm-hmm. Um, Bad you that. Uh, yeah, and so I, I, um, I was handed a book. A friend said, "said read this. If you like Mash, you'll like this." And it was Cash Twenty Two, and I it was my first holy moly moment, right? And I I read a book that that I absolutely adored, and that I couldn't get that information anywhere else. Mash was disappeared out of my brain as a mm. as a as a as a work of art compared to Cash Twenty Two. And my teacher, English teacher, saw me out there in the playground reading a fucking book. And she was like, what the hell? You don't, I didn't even know you could read. And, you know, I was bombing out. Like, I was the worst student. But I had long hair and converse, you know, the whole thing. Um, Can I please and, see a picture of that when you, when we're done, email? <laughs> I really um, would like to see that. And she got me talking and said, you know, it's a movie and, um, Blah blah. And do, you, do you like movies? Oh yeah, I like movies. What's your favorite movie? And I said, "Room with a View." And she's looking at me like, "What kind of weirdo? What? Who are you?" Who's this creature? <laughs> yeah, like, that's why, the one. Why do you Why do you like this this film? It's it's a historical drama. What the hell? Yeah, yeah. You know, she told, she she then informed me that it was a book, and she gave me. Um, she went to the library and. The next lesson I had with her, she plonked this huge volume which had the novels of Ian Forster and plonked them on my desk. And it was enormous. And I was like, Jesus Christ. But I opened Room of the View and it was word for word from the from the film, the opening scene. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> so I, so I, I, had a, I had an in. It was an easy way in because I, I was kind of already read it. So I was a terrible reader and I, I um, a slow and... The words jumped around the page, uh, and it was such a massive effort for me um, that having this guide, having this hand on my shoulder of having seen the movie, then made reading the book so much easier. Mm. But then, by a certain stage, you know, the same reasons I loved the film, you know, there was more of it in the book. So I was, I was obsessed, um, and so I read that, and then I read *Rangel's Fear to Tread* straight afterwards. Um, and then 
foolishly I read Passage to India, which is not my favourite of the of the books, and I stopped there and I moved on to other things. And it wasn't until you know two or three years later that I, I read Howard's End for the first time and went, "Holy smokes, this is this is the this means something." I don't understand it. I'm too young. I'm too stupid. <laughs> Holy hell! And so I've come back to that book every 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 five years, I think, come back to Howard's End to see if I'm smart enough to get it. And every every time I get more out of it, and every time I feel that I'm getting closer to what he's trying to tell me about love. Mm, I'm making a big list here of all these books that you're mentioning. Because um, I'm realizing how um, poor my catalogue in my mind is of all the things that I've read. But uh, shout out to English teachers, hey? Like, that's pretty special that she did that. What was? Do you remember her name? I... I'm so ashamed that I, I do not. That's okay. Um, she wouldn't mind, I'm sure. But it's really cool. <laughs> Speaking as an English teacher, like if, yeah, if you can make that moment happen for someone, it's pretty special. Um, another English teacher, the teacher that I had before her, um, wandered into my bookshop and almost had a heart attack when she saw me behind. She thought I was hot. I was just minding it for somebody. Uh, <laughs> even though even though it said John's bookshop on the front, she, just, she would not believe me. And That's funny. She, she thought it was hysterical. She could not understand how how what a turnaround. And I told yeah, her about yeah, what happened yeah. the following year. Yeah. That's funny too, because yeah. it sounds like that that English teacher really did set you on a course in your life, man. That's pretty full on little decision, hey? Yeah, yeah. The funny thing also with her was she set a course in snobbery too, right from that word go, mm-hmm. which which <laughs> so which it kind of served me well. I think that I think there's a lot of people who are who are, who are dissing snobbery in books um these days but it's kind of good to have a have that push to have a setup a foundation of this kind of reading mm. if, especially if you're going to be a writer um she came into class one time and uh as after she gave me that big fat book on uh, uh ian forster and there was a girl at the front reading stephen king and she picked the book up and put it in the bin right and the girl was <laughs> outraged absolutely outraged and um, <laughs> and then she was like, "But John's been reading in the back of the class for for the whole week. Why can't I read his reading?" Funny, oh my and, gosh! And she <laughs> said, "Well, John, John's reading good stuff." I can't. That imagine. That's amazing. Yeah, so, I can't. I'm just sorry. I'm just picturing my own classrooms and like to have students reading books. I would just little silent applause. Yes, please, more of this, please. I don't. It's Stephen King. I like Stephen King. Um, but that's really funny. She put. Put it in the bin, my gosh. Um, can I ask this question too? Obviously, we've talked a lot about all the different ways that this book um, is special, but, uh, you know, E.M. Forster's work is special as well. Um, what about his work and what elements would you hope to be able to also have in your own creative work? What is, what you know, is it is it a vibe? Is it a type of subtlety or what is it? Do you think if there's anything? Um, I think he's influenced me greatly. And writing the lessons, which was out in April, um, it was heavily, it influenced me heavily. I had no idea. When Catherine um, Milne at, at HarperCollins mentioned Room of the View, when she was um, talking about the book, and I was like, oh, Jesus, yeah, of course. <laughs> it, it's, it's pretty much right through my book, um, mm. Room of the View is in there. And so is persuasion, um, uh, which is which is my, in a sense, a sister book to Room of the View, uh, uh, Austin's Persuasion. Um, the lesson I got, and years, I mean, my agent 
Uh, I've known my agent for years, and she saw me as a struggling writer when I was I had my own bookshop, and I was constantly writing these things which um, alienated the the reader, uh, alienated everyone actually. Um, <laughs> in an effort, in an effort to remake writing or to to you know I don't know experimental, I don't who the hell knows. Right, mm. I, all I wanted was to be better than everyone else and different. And I wanted to thumb my nose at everyone and make them feel stupid. That was mm-hmm. that was my aim in that period. Uh-huh. Um, I was reading books that were so much better than anything I was ever going to write, and I was kind of aiming high and failing. And what she said, she pointed out to me in those early days that some of my favourite writers are easy to read, John. They are deep as hell, but they're also easy to read. You know, you don't have to be a dickhead. You can be easy to read and have all this other stuff going on that's funny that's funny it takes someone to point that out though like you were you were writing these impenetrable tomes and just being like heck yeah it must be pretty smart and someone you can make it you know approachable that's funny you know it it takes a long time to turn this ship around so it was years (laughs) (laughs) before i really turned the ship around and i really embraced it i mean um girl on the page is uh, a, a mash of commercial writing uh, mm. uh, and literary writing. And, I mean, the literary writing is pretty Booker Prize with winning literary writing. It's not, you know, it's not impenetrable by any, any scale, but it, it has different themes. It has a different tone to it. So when I'm writing about Helen and Malcolm in, in The Girl on the Page, I, I put on a different hat. And then when I'm writing about Amy in first person, I've got my, my commercial hat. And I went too far, I think, in my commercial um, hat. I mean, I, I, having written all that erotica and having, having read so much uh, in that area, mm. I, I assume that, I mean, Jackie Collins and that lot, I, I, and Bonk Busters, I assume there was a bit more sex to be enjoyed in, uh, in commercial fiction. But the result was that people were sort of turned off by the sex. But the character of Amy is very much a commercial fiction kind yeah. of character. yeah. And so I, I had to make sure that both both aspects of that book, because I wanted them to meet, I wanted them to mingle by the end, that I had merged these two competing um, areas of, of publishing, the commercial and the literary. Um, I needed to make both sides as page-turning as the, as the other, otherwise it would be a lopsided book and it would just be spinning in circles. And so I had to kind of be very careful when I wrote the Helen and Malcolm stuff to make sure that that side moved as quickly as, as the other. So I ended up having this, being very aware in that in that process, in that book, of all the things we've been talking about, about mm. the, the lesson Ian Forster taught me that you can have a, a fast-moving plot and have depth to it as well. Yeah. So I was, I was pulling from people like that who were ready to teach me how to do it. And in the lessons, um, it was more osmosis by that stage. I was less... I was less... I was less um, aware of the um the craft as mm. i was doing it mm. and it, it, it kind of settled in me a bit more um, yeah, so you, so, weren't, you weren't aiming at something you were sort of just letting it letting it come a bit more naturally so i feel that the lessons works better as a novel because of that there's not as much um sweat and effort involved in it yeah um that's interesting uh, and and things just permeate through it rather than i place it there you know yeah, right. It's a bit more natural feeling to you. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, 
uh, this book too, I think, like we were talking about in the relationship, you know, Lucy taught sort of choosing between George and Cecil in a, in a way, or, you know, realizing her own, the depths of her own feelings and sort of coming to grips with how she views herself even. Um, it sort of seemed to me sort of symbolic of, you know, this, this George sort of represents this kind of go with your passions, go with the things that feel the things that make you come alive, these, these feelings that are a bit scary, a bit riskier and things like that. But then Cecil was this type of, um, I don't know how would you describe Cecil, but he was type of snobbery, pretension a little bit um, refined, I guess, refined as a person and quite maybe restrictive on himself with a lot of different rules and things like that. And, and working in with the class as well. But I was thinking when I was reading about it, I was thinking about the actual craft of, of writing and the craft of being an artist as well. And that you kind of need a balance of both things when you're, when you're putting together a book. Do you, do you think that that's true? Do you think like when you, I don't know how, I don't know how your, your writing craft works, but for me, when I'm writing, I always feel like I go with my instincts and I try to be very, um, you know, instinctual when I'm writing and just sort of feel the feel the scene out a little bit feel the characters out a little bit but then at the end of the day I do have to go in and put on my editor's hat and sort of refine it and make it clear and make it distinct do you think writers need both passion and refinement in order to work or do you think um you think you can have one without the other do you have you ever read a book that's just pure passion I'm sure they exist maybe I haven't read them yeah, there's definitely books that, that are pure passion, and they're they're often very difficult books to mm. um, to to read. Uh, and then there's other ones that are just pure craft, and some of those are complete utter failures. They just have no feeling at all. But others, dead, yeah, others are, are, are absolutely magic. Um, I, I I generally work with both. I mean, you, you do have to put that 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 um, editor head, head hat on and and, and and rein in the passion side of things. Um, mm. I think at first, I think one of the reasons why I failed as a writer constantly was that I wanted everything to be passion, that everything had to be the heightened heightened sense. And if you weren't catching on, then you would on the thirtieth read understand, you know. Mm. Um, and I don't think I don't think that works. I, I mean, I'm not clever enough to make it work. You know, that's the <laughs> that's the key. Um, you kind of have to be. Um, a novelist with with the soul of a poet to kind of get that to to happen. Um, so I, I definitely balance the two. And I think I think when you look at the difference between Cecil and George, they're both in Italy. They're both appreciating the things that Italy has. Mm. They're both they're coming at it one through the medium of art and one through the medium of experience. Mm. Yeah, so, that's interesting too. So, yeah. Yeah. So. They're not that different in a sense. They're both yearning for the same thing. When when Cecil listens to music, he pulls something out of it that George hasn't experienced. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, and when he's looking at art, he pulls things out of art that George won't ever bother to learn. They're very intellectual. He intellectualizes the art, though. It's not from a sense of feeling. It's a sense of engagement with his mind. Yeah. But I think there's feeling there as well. I think it's both. I think it's, but it's generally the way he'll express it. Yeah. The way he wants to make sense of it is through the intellect. So when he will talk about it, he'll bring it back to the intellect. And yeah, so I think he's, sort of, of he's like, hiding from his own feelings underneath his intellect. Like he's, 
he's sort of afraid of these other things underneath here, but he'll intellectualize them and talk them through and make them sound very, very uh, uh, smart, I guess, or academic. Yeah, exactly. yeah that's interesting. Yeah, feelings are dangerous and dark, and they don't conform to rules. Yeah. And George is all feeling, but like you say, he hasn't got the depth of maybe uh, the complexity of the thoughts that that Cecil would have. I think it's really interesting. I think they're such a good, like, yeah, I don't know. They just, they, they match each other so well. Neither of them is like this evil mustache twirly guy. They're both, no. like, I like them both by the end of the book. And I can see things from both their sides, which I think is a hallmark of a good writer. Um, yeah. Lucy... Lucy is awesome. I really enjoyed reading about Lucy. Can I ask you this question? Do you think that she's a, what people would call a passive protagonist in that she's not making, she sort of just goes along with the ride for most of the book until right towards the end. And you know how they always, you go. I think, I think, I think that, I think there'd be a claim that she was passive, Um, Mm. but. But she works. I wanted to see what happens. I'm not, I'm not. But, you know, they say, write an active protagonist, make them make choices, have agency and stuff. But Lucy's sort of underneath this stuff. That's part of the story yeah, too, though, I guess. But there's a lot of stuff that's going on with Lucy as she, as she, um, you know, there's decisions that are being made mm. underneath the surface that she can't express. Um, and, you know, she, she makes the decision to go with Cecil. She doesn't. Like that, that's not a passive thing. She actually that's very true. She does choose to um, run from George after that kiss as well. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. There are things that she does. Um, what she doesn't do, she doesn't give herself agency. So she constantly goes on about how young she is. And then the second half, she feels that her experiences in Italy have made her wise and an adult. And what adult feelings are is repression, you know. <laughs> Those are the, that's what being an adult means is not getting your own way is to, ah. is to, um, is to, is to give up on those silly, silly things and silly dreams. So, yeah. I mean, I definitely on a, on a quick glance, absolutely passive until that mm. final. But I think, I think he wouldn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't take that away from her. She, she is alive throughout and she does have moments where she can make choices um, in a sense She's passive because she makes the wrong ones. <laughs> she makes the wrong choices. She chooses poor. It's so interesting. It's so deep. Like, it's so interesting and it's so complex, but it's so quick. Like, they're having so a quick. conversation and they're out in on the street and then she's seeing a murder and then he's whisking her away and it's just boom, boom, boom. It's not, I'm not laboriously going over description. Like, he's bare, there's almost bare descriptions here and there. It's just bang into the action. It's... Yeah. Very fast. Yeah. And that scene, that scene with the with, with her witnessing the, 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 the murder, um, the reaction of the two afterwards is just so subtle. <laughs> just so understated. Um, yeah. You know, he, he's both the film the film does a very good job of it as well, um, of that scene. Uh, but in the in the book I, I read that just a couple of days ago and and uh, yeah, I was just I was I was quite amazed. And that's something that I've I've in my own writing, uh, I've taken to heart is is trying to undo what I've done so that it's only those bits that reveal themselves. It's the bits that are necessary. Uh, and it's always hard because I always overwrite stuff. And, and to hone it back to getting 
to those mm. little essential points in, in any of those scenes uh, because it makes that scene bigger. Yeah. Um, weirdly. And then it also resonates down the book um, because we don't get what we expect. Mm-hmm. We're not given that. Um, how can it be so momentous if they haven't you know, screamed and yelled? And how can, where are the tears? And where, no, these two are shocked to their core. They've experienced <laughs> they'll never, never get over. Yeah. And, and it's expressed by him tossing her postcards into the river because they've got blood on them. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Genius. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, I heartily recommend this book to anyone uh, listening. And um, have you got like a list? Do you Have you ever published like a list of books that John Purcell kind of recommends like we read classic literature wise? Like I feel like you should make some sort of, you know what I mean? I think I'd, I'd, I'd look at that the, list. There's one on the, there's one on, there's, well, there's two, there's lists in the back of um, Go on the Page. That's true. That, that Helen and Malcolm um, recommend, and a lot of those are my recommendations. Um, but on, on, Booktopia, on, Booktopia, on Booktopia blog, I, 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 over the years, I've done a lot of a lot of classic lists and the like. There was a there were twenty six books in twenty six weeks or something like that. that yeah, yeah. Um, things like that. There's a whole range of those sort of things uh, on, on, the, on the blog. But yeah, I, mean, I should put it on my, my website. That's what I should do. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, man. I like it's. Um, I've been. I feel like I've had an education. A really. A sneaky one that I didn't know I was be- I was entertained, you know. It's that honey-soaked <laughs> pill that you were talking about. I didn't realize, <laughs> but I've learned some. Uh, it's really good. Um, thank you, John. Yeah, and your the latest novel from you is The Lessons. So anyone listening, uh, obviously go out and grab a copy of that as well. And, um, yeah, read some of John's work. As you can hear, he's very, very smart. And I think maybe uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I think you downplay how good your books are a little bit in your conversation here. Is it just me? <laughs> do all authors do that? I do that too, I think. Oh, my, my book's absolutely and utterly brilliant. There you go. Works of, works of genius. Go. Everyone should read them. They should be taught at school. <laughs> how did that feel? Can I ask how did that feel when you said that just now? Was it good? I've never done that. It's very weird. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's brilliant, man. Uh, yeah, man. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, and read E.M. Forster as well. I think I need to read a bit more, and I think I need to read more Jane Austen as well because I feel or I fear I've missed out there. I've barely read any Jane Austen. I'm sorry, John. John, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's all right. You're looking yeah. at me. I know. I feel I feel awful. It's my wife's she, – she is my wife's favourite author, and I've never invested. That's a shame. That Isn't really that shame. awful of me? What the heck is wrong with me? I f- I'm just, I'm feeling, again, I'm learning something. All right. All right. Uh, thanks, man. I'll, uh, I'll see you soon, hopefully. And um, yeah, take it easy over there in sunny Britain. <laughs> Thank you. No All right. right. Oh, hang on. i got to stop the recording.